on an unsettled midsummer's day in July 1505. A young university student was walking through fields on his way to the Saxon village of Stottenheim in the middle of the country that today we'd call Germany. That young man's name was Martin Luther. As he approached the village, the sun disappeared and the sky went dark with thunderclouds. There was a shower of rain and then suddenly a bolt of lightning that hit earth close to where Martin Luther was walking. It threw him to the ground, struggling to get up. He cried out, St. Anne, help me! I will become a monk! He kept that promise. He did become a monk. But ten years later, this same young man was going to start a revolution, a chain reaction, an avalanche, a movement that gave birth to the Protestant church and a period in history that Today we call the Reformation. Martin Luther did this by nailing a list of complaints and ideas, a list called the 95 Theses. He nailed them to the door of All Saints Church on All Saints Eve, October 31st, 1517, and mailing them to his boss, Albert of Brandenburg, Archbishop of Mainz. So, we have 31 days to prepare for the 500th anniversary of that great event. And today is the first of a five-part series that will help us prepare to celebrate. So along the way in this five-part series, we're going to do a bit of church history, understanding the Reformation, what happened and why. And we're also going to do a bit of theology. In particular, we're going to look at five statements which have come to be recognized after the fact as the five kind of crystallization points around which the reformers gathered their thoughts. Um, These five ideas were were not rallying slogans at the time. But they were the five key ideas that gave clarity to Reformation zeal. Five ideas that led to the transformation of the church and therefore also to the world. And these five ideas are called the five solas or five alones. And they are, firstly, sola scriptura, the Bible alone, sola fide, by faith alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, solus Christus, Jesus Christ alone, and soli Deo gloria, glory to God alone. Now, each of these alone statements can only be really understood if it's recognized that they are the answer to a question. So you need to know what the question is before the answer makes sense. But that's what we're going to do along the way. Martin Luther was born in Germany in 1483, and he died in 1546, age 62. He was born into a hard-working peasant family. His father, Hans, had started out as a laborer in the mines. But with hard work, he'd prospered, and he'd worked his way up to part-owning um, a number of copper mines and also a smelting works. They were a conservative, highly religious family. Hans and Margareta doted on their son. Hans prayed with his son each night before bed. 
And Margareta also was a woman of prayer. And they had plans for their highly intelligent son. They figured that he'd make a brilliant lawyer, marry well, and care for them in their old age. So they forked out the cash to give him a great education. They, they paid for him to go to grammar school and then to university, wherein he was prepared for a career in the law. Those plans, of course, came crashing down with that thunderstorm on that sultry summer's day in July 1505. What did Martin mean? What did he mean by, St. Anne, help me, I will become a monk? What did he mean by that? Well, if you know something about medieval Roman Catholicism, that statement is obvious. If you don't know anything about medieval Roman Catholicism, then this statement of Martin's is a very good place to start because by the time we've worked through this statement, we'll have a pretty good understanding of medieval Roman Catholicism. Fundamentally, what Martin Luther was trying to do was to save himself from going to hell. That's what he was frightened about. Luther is living in a time when, for almost everyone, life is both very hard and very short. People considered life on earth to be a short, often a very short training period for the life to come, wherein the saved enjoyed eternal bliss and the damned suffered everlasting torment. Given that, how could you make sure that you were saved? Well, in short, actually, you couldn't be sure. But in general, the answer was to do as many good works as possible with reference to the church, taking as much advantage as you could of the grace that was bestowed upon you when you participated in the sacraments, in pilgrimages, in indulgences, and in the intercession of the saints. Uh, Grace... Grace was understood to be a commodity, uh, like currency. Grace was how God ran his heavenly economy. Everybody was saved by grace, but you had to get enough of it. Good works generated grace. Jesus' death on the cross generated grace. When a priest said mass, that generated more grace. And the saints, being spectacularly good people, they had earned even more grace than they needed to get themselves into heaven. And so they had extra grace to give away when and if you prayed to them. Now, according to Roman Catholic tradition, St. Anne is Mary's mother. In other words, Jesus' grandmother. And she is the patron saint of a long list of people, including minors. And she is also a protector of storms, from storms. Hans, Hans Luther, got rich praying to St. Anne. And so she was the obvious saint for young Martin to cry out to when he got caught in a storm. And Martin Luther, as a monk, actually prayed to 21 saints in total, three for each day of the week. Becoming a monk from the perspective of medieval Roman Catholicism, becoming a monk would be the obvious first step towards not going to hell. Being ordained as a monk or priest would mean, from the perspective of their thinking, becoming a totally different category of person. 
He would leave all worldly concerns behind. He'd impress God with his poverty and self-denial, fasting and disciplined prayer life, study of holy books, his helping of the sick and the poor. As a, um, as a 14-year-old boy, uh, Martin had seen Prince William of Anhalt, who had forsaken his noble birth in order to become a friar. And Martin Luther later wrote, With my own eyes I saw him. I saw him carrying the sack like a donkey. He had so worn himself down by fasting and vigil that he looked like a death's head, mere bone and skin. No one could look upon him without feeling ashamed of his own life. Unquote. In popular opinion, monasticism was the way to heaven par excellence. So Martin did become a monk. He became an Augustinian monk. He kept his vow. His dad was furious. And we should understand with respect to Hans that, it was, that his dad was, was so upset, not simply because he had ambitious dreams for his gifted kid, but indeed because Martin was his superannuation. Martin was his retirement plan. At a stroke, Martin blew his dad's retirement fund, which was himself. And as a monk, Luther was fanatically conscientious. When it came to vigils, fasting, prayers, Luther always exceeded the rule. He forsook blankets, the, the blankets he was allowed to have, and he lay shivering in his cell all night long. He, he later wrote, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading and other work. Unquote. But all of this gave his soul no tranquility, no peace, no comfort. At times he felt proud of his sanctity and would say to himself, I have done nothing wrong today. But then misgivings would arise and he'd cross-examine himself. Have you fasted enough? Are you poor enough? The purpose of his strivings was to balance out his sins with good works. But he never felt sure. He never felt confident. The more he looked at himself, the more sin he saw. The more he considered texts such as Christ's Sermon on the Mount, the more he realized he fell short. He had to redouble his efforts. And one of the things that he could do as a monk was to take advantage of the extra merit of the saints that they had accumulated. And he could take advantage by going on pilgrimages to see holy relics. This transfer of grace, this electronic grace transfer, if you like, was mediated through the church, and in particular through the Pope, who, as St. Peter's successor as Bishop of Rome, had the keys to heaven. This uh, EGT, this electronic grace transfer, was called an indulgence. For example, by visiting the holy relics in the city of Hale in Saxony, every pilgrim was endowed by Pope Leo X with an indulgence that lessened their time in purgatory by 4,000 years. Very handy. <laughs> Bargain at half the price. 
Purgatory, by the way, was a halfway house between life on earth and heaven, a place of suffering and torment on the way to heaven for further purification of the soul. Most people, it was thought, went to purgatory to suffer for sins that had been confessed and forgiven but had not been sufficiently um, not been sufficiently paid for, not, not been sufficiently suffered for. And they went to purgatory on their way to heaven. Most people imagined that their dead relatives were indeed in purgatory. Now, the city of Rome was holy relic central. Uh, for example, in a single crypt, they had 40 popes and 76,000 martyrs buried there. Rome had a piece of Moses' burning bush and 300 bits of the holy innocents. The holy innocents being the children murdered by Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2. Rome had St. Paul's chains and a pair of scissors that had been used to cut St. John's hair and one of Judas Iscariot's coins, as well as the 12-foot beam from which Judas hung himself. You could get more indulgences by going to Rome than you could by going to Jerusalem. In front of the Lateran Basilica in Rome are the um, Scala Sancta, the 28 stairs. Supposedly taken from Pontius Pilate's own palace in Jerusalem and therefore perhaps containing still uh, drops of the blood of Christ. They'd been moved to Rome. If you crawled up these stairs on your hands and knees, saying the Lord's Prayer on each step, you could release a soul from purgatory when you got to the top. That was the deal. On a trip to Rome, Martin Luther did this. The year was 1510. Um, this is an actual photo of actual, uh, taken by one of his monk buddies and loaded up. <laughs> Facebook didn't exist then, of course. This um, was before Facebook. Facebook was called Ye Olde Bookie of Countenances. Um, <laughs> but in actual fact, as you all already perhaps would have noticed, Joseph Fiennes and Martin Luther did not look remotely like each other. <laughs> other than that, the film called Luther, starring Joseph Fiennes, is actually a very fine film. But anyway, when Martin Luther was there in 1510, he regretted, it was sad, that his parents were still alive. He regretted that his mum and dad were still alive, they weren't dead yet. How handy to be able to release them from purgatory. So instead he did it for Grandpa Hein. The steps were climbed, the prayers were said, each step actually was kissed. He, he embellished. But on getting to the top step, Martin Luther is supposedly said, who knows if it is true? He was disillusioned with everything he saw in Rome. So he tried confession. Confession is the daily sacrament of confessing your sins to a priest. And he drove his confessor to distraction. With respect to things to confess, the more he looked, the more he saw. Now, in order to be forgiven, you must confess your sins. If you don't confess your sins, you're not forgiven. And if you don't confess that sin, you're not forgiven it. But to, to be forgiven, therefore, you must both recognize your sin and remember it. Sinners don't tend to recognize sin. That's a problem. And nobody remembers everything. The methodology was clearly flawed. When it comes to sin... 
the real problem is not individual transgressions, but the very nature of fallen humanity. The problem is not that we sin. The problem is that we are sinners. That's a different kind of a problem. Uh, Luther was later to write, quote, The physician does not need to probe each pustule to know that the patient has smallpox, nor is the disease to be cured scab by scab. To focus on particular offences is a counsel of despair, unquote. Luther's confessor and guide in the monastery was a man named Staupitz. Staupitz um, tried to help Martin by pointing him to the way of mysticism. Now, mysticism is a form of spirituality that does not deny sin or its consequences, but rather seeks to focus on, on the love of God and in surrendering to God's love to find peace in simply being. Well, to cut to the chase, it didn't work for Martin. For, for Martin, God was just too holy and therefore too frightening. God, the consuming fire, clothed in darkness. Fear him, says the Bible. God, the holy. God, the just. God, the judge. The wrath of God. It was too frightening a picture for Martin. Martin Luther later wrote, Love God? I hated him. The first time Martin Luther said Mass, he was reduced to a gibbering wreck because of his consciousness of the holiness of God, this God who is holy and judges. Staupitz thought long and hard about what to do with this young monk who was despairing of ever being saved. And he decided to give him something to take his mind off things, something to engage Martin's brilliant mind that seemed to spin out of control if it didn't get traction and engage with something purposeful. So he told him, Martin, you are to study for your doctorate and take up the chair of Bible at the University of Wittenberg. In uh, 1513, Martin Luther commenced his new life as a Bible lecturer, presenting a series of lectures on the Psalms. And in 1515, he started teaching on the book of Romans and also the book of Galatians. But it would be through the book of Romans that Martin Luther would come to understand the gospel for the first time. Now, um, in the book of Romans, the author, Paul, uses a certain phrase again and again. We heard it from, from Lydia uh, this morning. And that phrase is rendered in our NIV Pew Bibles, the righteousness of God. In the Greek in which Paul wrote, there is one word, dikaisone, um, which covers both the ideas of justice and righteousness. Um, so, dikaiusene can mean righteousness, to be right with, justice, judgment. And the phrase, the righteousness of God, it can therefore be translated the justice of God. And that's how it was in, in the Latin Bible that, um, that um, Martin Luther was uh, used to. So whenever Martin came across this phrase, the justice of God, he understood that phrase in a punitive sense. The justice of God is the justice you can't escape, God punishing sinners. But as he started reading more and more of Paul's works, he understood that that's not what Paul's talking about at all. The justice of God that Paul is talking about is a justice, is a justification that is given as a free gift to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel, this righteousness that is by faith from first to last, this righteousness is a free gift. It's the free gift of being right with God, of being God's friend, of being justified, of being declared not guilty. A free gift given to everyone who believes the moment they believe. When Martin Luther grasped that that is what Paul was going on about, simply being God's friend by faith, then he writes, quote, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise, unquote. He, he continues, The whole of Scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweeter in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. He writes, If you have true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace. And overwhelming love. What Martin had discovered is the idea that we now call justification by faith alone. And it is an extremely important idea. Without it, any human being who tries to deal with God will either go bonkers or to hell or both. So, what is justification? Theologically, justification means God declaring a sinner to be right with him, to be his friend. Talking about salvation and justification is a little tricky because both terms are talking about how God rescues his people, bringing them into his holy people. And so the two ideas of salvation and justification are closely and intimately related. We are saved by grace. We cannot save ourselves. And we are justified by faith. We are right with God simply because we believe him. Now, in our hearts, before we are born again, but in our hearts we know that we are not right with God. We instinctively know this because of sin, because of the bad things we do, the bad things we think, and the good things we fail to do. And left to our own devices, this leads us to think that if we want to be right with God, then, then, then I'm going to have to undo what I've done. And I'm going to have to take the initiative, I'm going to have to pay back the debt. And perhaps when I've made appropriate and sufficient payment, then I will have restored my relationship with God. That's the way sinners think. And such Thinking is reasonable given our frame of reference. If, for example, we commit a crime or go to prison, then indeed on being set free, we, we might speak in terms of, hey, I did the wrong thing, but I've paid my debt to society, and now I'm a reformed person. Such a person may indeed believe and insist upon being righteous in right relationship with the rest of society because they have paid the price. And likewise, if we damage a precious relationship, a friendship, a marriage, or a, say a contract with a boss, we may, indeed, we may indeed have to take the initiative. A bottle of wine, a bunch of flowers, an appropriate worded apology, damaged goods replaced, in order to be righteous, in order to be in right relationship with that person again. 
Therefore, with respect to God, we may well believe that we, we save ourselves by saving, saying sorry and we justify ourselves by all the good works that we will do, the fruit of repentance, so that on that basis of, basis of these good works, we're right with God again. The, the problem is that with God, sinners just aren't able to do that. Sinners often think they can, but that's actually because they think about sin sinfully. And that's part of the problem of being a, a sinner. Because, because we are sinful, we deceive ourselves about the seriousness of sin. We deceive ourselves about the reality of sin. We deceive ourselves um, about the possibility that, that we, can, we can make good. But God is holy and he knows that the sinner is completely incompatible with him. Because he is holy and perfect. We cannot save ourselves. Um, The good news of the gospel, which the Old Testament prepares us for and the New Testament announces, is that God has taken the initiative for us, even before we knew to ask. Jesus, the Son of God, a man tempted in every way just as we are but without sin, Jesus offered himself on our behalf on the cross and Therein became our sacrifice of atonement, atonement, penal substitution. He died in my place, in your place. In this, God demonstrates his justice, his righteousness. Yes, he punishes sin. And the one who, the one who, the one who justifies, um, he is the one who declares us right with him. He declares us justified on the basis that he has taken our punishment upon himself. How do we receive this benefit? How do we receive the benefit of the cross, forgiveness of sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, do we do it by by way of, of attending diligently to the sacraments of the church, by confession, by indulgences and pilgrimages, by mysticism, or by becoming a monk? No. We gain the benefits of the cross simply by believing. And the moment we believe, we've gained them simply by hearing and going, Thank you, God. Just putting our trust in Jesus, believing that it's true. God's satisfied with that. And we're saved. As Paul puts it in Ephesians, For it is by the grace of God. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, um, we'll continue with Martin Luther again uh, next week. What can we learn from this today? Well, The Roman Catholic Church in Martin Luther's day had completely lost sight of the truths that we are discussing. The reason that this happened is that it is a very easy thing to do. Even before the New Testament was done being written, the Colossian and Galatian churches were off target and on the wrong track with respect to these very things. 
Um, religious observances, sacraments and good works, spiritual disciplines such as church attendance, tithing, offering gifts to the poor, prayer and fasting, evangelism and prophecy and teaching, self-denial and sacrificial living, the way you do this thing, the way you do that thing, these things are not unimportant. But left to our own devices, they become devices. We start believing that it is by doing such things that we save ourselves, that we justify ourselves before a holy God, and it just ain't so. It just doesn't work that way. And, and, and when we think that way, we just end up back in slavery all over again. Sola gratia. By grace alone. It is only by the grace of God that we are saved. Sola fide. By faith alone. It is simply by faith alone that we are justified. Why were you born so beautiful? Why were you born at all? Because you had no say in it. No say in it at all. Why were you born again? Why were you born again so beautiful? Because you had no say in it. No say in it at all. Uh, If you believe in Jesus, you are God's child. Blameless, without flaw or accusation in his sight. The Lord be with you.